Radio Show brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. In case this is the first time you're tuning in to the Talent Talk Radio Show, we generally feature a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. So on this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First is it relates to uh, success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully that you see how that works and the word talent has a couple different meanings in the business world and this show really looks to explore those two areas as best we can. Typically, my guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, coaches, uh, consultants from all different industries. And when I'm out at networking events or industry conferences, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my great guests today, I want to thank those of you tuning in live. Don't forget, you can submit your questions via Twitter. Just tweet them to at PeopleG2. Use the hashtag, all one word, the hashtag Talent Talk. My producer, Mike, can feed me those questions, and we'll try to work them into the show. We also have people sending us suggestions for guests and other great ideas, so keep it coming. Don't forget, you can listen to our show via podcast later on on iTunes or Android, as well as subscribe to have that weekly show sent to you. As of today, we have over 60,000 subscribers to the podcast feed, and we are just uh, just overjoyed and appreciative to everyone who tunes in and listens on the treadmill or at their kids' soccer practice or wherever is convenient for them. With that said, let's get today's show started. My guests today are Kelly Purdue, the CEO of Target Close, and also Zing Shaw, U.S. Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Edelman. Zing will join me in the second half of the show. So now let's go ahead and get to our first guest, Kelly Purdue. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the company you're with now, Target Close. Sure. Um, I'm a vet. Uh, I went to West Point for undergrad and served in the U.S. Army as an officer, a military intelligence officer, airborne ranger. And when I got out of the military, I went to law and business school. That was quite a while ago. I've been building companies pretty much since then and had a, a brief stint in the spotlight as the uh, season two winner of The Apprentice and worked with Donald Trump for a year uh, and since then have been building technology companies and also uh, act as an angel investor and mentor to entrepreneurs active in about, I don't know, 25 active investments and early stage companies to help uh, build and grow them to support our economy and uh, create jobs for people. Well, I remember meeting you at uh, one of the ABL meetings that I attend on a regular basis. Uh, some of your story that you just shared with us now I had known before, but it certainly makes sense in, in understanding your success and the things that you've been able to do with the path that you took, the background that you have, and where some of those things have landed you. But certainly the first time I ever, your, paths, your path crossed with mine was when I watched you on TV. 
seeing you on The Apprentice. It was probably the last season I watched that I actually enjoyed before it turned into kind of a celebrity mess. Um, I kind of felt <laughs> like, uh, you know, your your season was one that it felt uh, a little bit closer to reality. Let's maybe put it that way. That, you know, the things you guys were being asked to do, as an entrepreneur, I could see some of the value in them. So I remember you had told a story when I ran into you again at that uh, ABL meeting uh, about having this kind of mentor that once you had won and you were now working for for Mr. Trump, um, that you got to spend a, a great deal of time with someone who was, I think, I, if I remember it correctly, some kind of a master negotiator and him kind of taking you into these different scenarios and kind of applying some different tactics at different times. And I remember this story me fascinating. So if you don't, if you remember telling that story, if you remember what I'm talking about, uh, maybe you could kind of paraphrase that for our listeners. I really found it kind of quite interesting. Absolutely. I think, obviously, Donald Trump's incredibly affluent, wealthy, smart, very successful. And watching how he operates, it was interesting to see the themes that uh, occurred over that. I was with him for about 14 months. I moved to New York City and actually worked with him on a daily basis. And at the bottom of everything, and, and kind of the fundamental touch point for him was it was around impeccability, which is one of the chapters in my book that I wrote called Take Command, um, 10 Leadership Principles that I Learned in the Military and Put to Work for Donald Trump. But he, like I, and, and this is what I talk to entrepreneurs and people who are looking at their next career transition, everything else about is really operating with the thought of impeccability, meaning trying to deliver the best that you can do. You only get that first chance to make a good impression, obviously. The reason he's able to do so many different things is he's adhered to that a level of impeccability in everything that he does, whether it's the quality of the building, the types and the deal terms that he does, so that he's gotten to the point now where, yes, he started out a lot better off than a lot of people with a father who, I think, the stories of the book show that he had like $20 million, $25 million, and his father was a real estate developer in New York. And at 26 years old, for better or for worse, there are a whole lot of people like that. And Donald Trump, is, however, has turned you know, the Trump name into a recognized worldwide brand on so many SKUs, they're not even countable, hundreds, right? From mm-hmm. ties and watches and vodkas to board games to you name it. It's not just real estate. And I'd say the key element was maintaining a level of quality in everything that he touched so that he could develop that brand. And it was fascinating to watch how that operated as there all of those different types of businesses came through the door and he was able to like you said from a negotiation standpoint be able to maintain control of the brand element so that he could maintain a level of quality and keep that impeccability yeah well that's a interesting term that you're using the impeccability because it's not one that i think people throw around very often and it's one that if i had heard you say it just you know if you were passing along the street and I heard you say that, I would think of someone in the, in the, in the service. I would think of that as a term that is, you know, or at least something that's really, you know, what us people who have not been served in the military would think that is something you have to learn. You have to have the, that kind of quality to be successful, to be a good officer, to have a good military career, and if, if you're put into a dangerous situation, to possibly survive it. So it's interesting that kind of transfer then into the business world because... So many times people have a great idea, they want to start a company, or they go out, they start working for somebody, and that's not something that people think about, and it's not something that they're being taught, and it really, really is such an important thing, but yet at the same time, when we are managing employees, we have to take kind of maybe 
brush a different stroke with with how we get our employees to be impeccable as opposed to maybe your drill sergeant did right oh absolutely the uh <laughs> and, it, and it's, it's interesting because from a leadership standpoint and i do consider it a leadership characteristic when you are, are acting with impeccability it kind of rubs off on people if you're setting the bar kind of at a certain standard with your own and it doesn't you don't have to be in the leadership role either you could be a part of the team i'm sure the listeners have all experienced this when someone on your team is performing at a, at a high level it kind of gets everybody else to try to step up their game and do it and it could be with clients with creditors with investors whatever it might be and it, it's also not about having to be perfect mm-hmm. um certainly managing expectations is very important as well saying you're going to deliver something you better deliver at least that saying you're going to deliver it at a certain time or date you better meet or beat that expectation that's a part of impeccability as well or at least own it i mean if there's something that really happened that stopped you from doing that at least being open and honest and owning the problem and and then doing everything you can to fix it i mean impeccability is not like you said it's not being perfect and i see so many times that entrepreneurs get themselves into a bad situation over their head and then they start lying or they start blaming or covering up and, and everyone can see through that they know, and I think the most successful ones, they can own up to their mistake. They can make good on it, right? Absolutely. Uh, I believe that integrity is is actually the most important leadership characteristic, and bad news doesn't usually get better with time. <laughs> so it's actually in everyone's best interest to deliver it early if you know of something. Um, and, and then again, it's about managing expectations. If I'm a investor in a company or a board member, certainly don't want the management team to hide something where if we found out early enough about it, we might be able to help the situation. Right. I guess into that term of if you're going to fail, fail fast, because it's a lot easier to turn the ship around and or to fix the problem than when it gets to be too big of an issue. Well, yeah, that's, that is certainly a popular uh, Silicon Valley term. Yes, it is. It is. But it seems to be, it seems to be one of the few that are really permeating out into everyday life. I, I hear it more and more from people in just general context instead of just, you know, Silicon Valley or, you know, some sort of term uh, or investment terms or things like that. So, you know, kind of yeah, t- I think it's on the, on the fail fast piece, I urge a little bit of a word of caution because um, there aren't a significant number of entrepreneurs who gave, just threw their hands up in the air when they hit a rough bump or an obstacle or a wall their way. And the most successful ones actually figure out a way around, over, or through the wall. Sure. So it, you, you, have to, you have to temper... A fast fail, meaning, hey, we understand it. We went out in the marketplace. We explored it completely, and there's not a room for this product. Let's pivot, or let's move into a different area where we can create significant amount of value. So I would just, just kind of two sides of that coin of failing fast. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's a good kind of correction. That failing in itself, what we mean there is not giving up. It's not that you've, you're done. It's that if you've made error in calculation, like you said, is the market going to going to be able to bear this this product or this service or hey we thought the best thing was going to be marketing on billboards on the freeway well that didn't work so you need to qu- quickly exactly. quickly change and go market somewhere else you know what's the best way to do exactly. that yeah you, you know, you're talking about some of these different companies where you've been an angel investor or sit on a board so you've had a great opportunity to really invest in some some pretty cool companies and and serve as an advisor for them so maybe you could talk about some of these companies and how you feel your advisory role has, has made a difference sure i look at my investments a few different ways one it's very important to me that the team be smart, hardworking, successful, basically exhibiting a lot of the leadership characteristics that I think are the most important. And one of those is also fundamentally the idea that they don't know everything. 
and that they're open to listening and understanding and, and taking my feedback because over the course of the eight companies that I've been involved with either starting or running, I've fallen into a lot of big holes, uh, bumped my head against a lot of walls, and I, I would hope that I would be able to convey and facilitate the companies that I invest into either avoid them or diminish the problems that are associated with them. So that being able to listen is super important. From uh, the types of companies that I've invested in, a lot of them are software as a service companies, split evenly between B2B and B2C, and many of them actually have vets as either founders or owners in the business. And, I mean, I can tell you several of the different names of them, but RideScout was one that two vets started together about two years ago, and we ended up selling it a few weeks ago to Daimler Chrysler. Mm-hmm. Uh, ID.me is another very fast-growing company that allows you to verify your identity online, say in the checkout flow. You could say, yes, I was in the military, interstitial pops up, and you prove that quickly, and then your discount from that advertiser applies in the checkout flow. Mm-hmm. That's true at Under Armour, Overstock, and there's a few hundred more retailers that are bringing online soon. Bidium allows for you as a business to manage all your software application sign-ons and logins so that when somebody leaves your company, there's not a security breach because they still have access to data. You can actually manage that as an administrator. So really solving some what are typically considered complex problems and doing it in a very, what I would call, an elegant manner that's uh, disruptive to the existing ecosystems. Well, that's uh, certainly a recipe for success. If you can be a disruptor and you can provide something that's better, and uh, it sounds like if you have some pretty good teams with people that you mentioned, there'd be some good successes. Ha- have there been any, though, that have been a tough challenge along the way? No way. Everything is 100% successful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of, 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 of course there have been challenges. Um, I mentioned IDME, the two co-founders, Harvard Business School, and prior to that, um, or special forces um, in Iraq and Afghanistan together for several tours. Not together, separately, but they met at Harvard Business School. Their initial business model and business plan was to go and create kind of a Groupon-like offering for military members and their families, because many of the offerings that existed were based in primary cities, large cities, and many of the military bases are not near those locations to be able to participate. And that led to being able to identify that somebody online is who they say they are, i.e., they were really in the military, so they don't get people posing as being in the military, getting advantage sure. of those, those discounts, moving to every affinity. So it's not just military people, but first responders, students, all the way through to maybe AARP members, to whatever it might, that advertiser might want to be able to give a discount to. So being able to problem-solve and, like I said before, pivot, as you see opportunities in the marketplace is a key ingredient to most of the successful companies that you see going public, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So uh, you founded uh, your current company, Target Close, back in 2012. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what led you to start the company and how it's gone over the last year and a half. Absolutely. So Target Close is basically a conversion optimization platform, and everybody who's a listener has been bombarded with some type of an advertisement whether it be as an email on their cell phone, as a banner ad while they're surfing the web, on a radio, on a TV, whatever it might be, urging them to either click on that ad and go to the advertiser's website or call an 800 number or go into a retail store. We looked at all of the billions of dollars and types of um, technologies that exist that allow advertisers and their agencies to target consumers 
And we said, wow, that's pretty impressive. They can find me exactly when I'm in my car or when I'm at my desk, right when I sit down on my computer, and they can hit me with just the right tested subject line and the right creative to get me to click. Lots of science and technology behind that. The problem is when you click, Chris, or I click, or my wife clicks, or my 15-year-old stepson clicks on the same advertiser, let's call it Under Armour, whoever it might be, we all end up at pretty much 99% of the time the same exact experience on the advertiser's website. Right. And that's a problem because we're all, we all have different intentions. There's a lot of information known about us. We're coming from different devices at different times of day, different uh, media campaigns. So at Target Close, what we did is we took all of the science that's used on that front end for finding the individual and trying to get them to click and applied that to once the that consumer, that would-be customer, gets to the advertiser's uh, website. And we create curated funnels that offer up literally curated experience that are appropriate for that user because not everybody is created equally. Not everybody wants the same thing. And we have a lot of the information and data. So let's give them what they're coming for. And usually within 30 days of implementing our system, we're getting 30 to 50% increase in conversion rate without changing anything else about where they're spending money on media or any of that type of stuff. So it's good for the advertiser, and it's a very curated, nice, great experience for that consumer. We have the information. We should give them what they want. So that's what we do. That's very cool. Well, uh, you know, culture is uh, something that's been a real hot topic lately and something that I, I, I kind of spent some time talking about. I'll be talking tomorrow to a group, but I always like to get the kind of the thoughts and impressions of our guests about what they're seeing in their own companies about culture. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what your culture looks like within your own company right now. So we're still consider us a startup, right? So what it's been, two and a half, three years of, of operating. We're bootstrapped, so we didn't take any outside capital. And I have primarily right now technologists on the team. I'm fortunate to have a co-founder. Uh, his name is Oded Noy, who was the co-founder of TrueCar. They went public about four months ago. But he also runs the Southern California Technology Forum. So we are very much about keeping passion, excitement, cutting edge, changing the world attitude about everything that we're working on. And it's important that that permeate the workplace. I don't know if any of the listeners have read the book, The Advantage. Um, I'm a big believer in that book. Patrick Lencioni wrote it. And it talks about the difference between the kind of the good companies and the great companies that are able to, without much else being different, the distinguishing factor is typically how that company's culture nourishes kind of problem-solving teamwork, how are we going to overcome, and in, in technology startups especially, it's imperative that you have that type of a culture in order to be able to succeed. Given where your company's at right now, uh, like you said, you said you're bootstrapping, you're, you're still in that startup phase, your, your hair might even be on fire at times. So are there certain things that you have or expectations that you have for the staff that are in place right now as it kind of relates back to your culture? And, and, and I'm also thinking, too, given your background you know, with West Point and everything, how does that kind of permeate your organization? Sure, I think um, a couple of things. The high attention to detail. I'm not sure if uh, I was OCD before uh, <laughs> before the military or if it got exacerbated or what. But a high attention to detail. I think most of my team understands is incredibly important. And then, even though we're a, you know a product slash platform company, we have clients, and 
addressing those clients is the reason we're in business. So a, a very high level of attention to our clients uh, is front and center in most of our discussions. And there's something in the military that's called the commander's intent, and that's actually something that's at the top of every operations order. So let's say, hey, we've got to go take that bridge. This is how I want the units to split up. There's a lot of flexibility for each of the units to accomplish what they're supposed to be doing and going after taking that bridge. But the commander's intent is X, Y, and Z. And the, the objective of the commander's intent, and the way it's separated out, it's a couple sentences long at the most, is if I'm alone on the battlefield, right, I'm a private, lowest rank on the battlefield, if I know the commander's intent, I'm alone, I'm cut off from communications, I at least know what I'm still supposed to be trying to do to accomplish the mission. And I think that in every organization, some type of commander and tech needs to be involved because you can't and you shouldn't be sitting down next to each person every single day micromanaging. Everybody should kind of understand which way the boat's going and why so that they can operate independently and make intelligent decisions about what they're doing. Right. That's really, really important, I think. If you ask the average person in the average company if they understood what their CEO's intent was, I don't think they could answer that question, at least not correctly. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. You would probably get a lot of different answers um, unless this was a kind of part of the culture. So right. I, uh, I frequently will defer a presentation of, say, a sales pitch or whatever is going on to a person who wasn't anticipating b- b- doing it. So by now, people kind of anticipate it. But it's interesting to hear their perspective on the value proposition that they're selling it to a client and understanding how it goes. So I try to check in on where we sit with that with different people in the organization as we move. Yeah, and that's a really good way to check perceptions, check uh, knowledge, uh, and making sure also that you are uh, seeing everything that could be a value. They might be seeing something that could be a great you know, line or a great uh, value point for that uh, sales presentation. So uh, that's, a really, that's a really neat way to, to kind of have two-way communication top down and bottom up. One of the things that we, we always love to ask our guests, and I'm considering you've already given us, uh, I think, at least one, if not two, uh, good suggestions is, you know, what are you reading right now, and can you tell us about that book? Yeah, and I, I, like I said, I just reread uh, The Advantage, and then another one that I, especially for, as you can kind of tell, I'm heavy into entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs, not only from an investment standpoint, from building my own company. Four Steps to the Epiphany is something that, that Stephen Blank, I think every entrepreneur should read and understand, and it's part of kind of the lean movement in terms of that fail-fast component that we talked about earlier. At least the first three or four chapters of Four Steps to the Epiphany Advantage is what I've recommended to all my CEOs who have invested in. Really great examples, highly applicable if you're trying to start and or run your own business, especially in the technology space. And we uh, always take all the books that any of our uh, guests suggest, and we do put them up on our uh, our blog update, which is generally up in a couple of weeks, and we also post the show. So if anyone didn't have a chance to write that down, we will have it on the blog at peopleg2.com slash blog, where we'll have a full recap of uh, today's interview and list all the books that Kelly mentioned here today. Before we go, how can people get a hold of uh, Target Close or learn more about your company if they're interested in doing business with you? Absolutely. Uh, our website's TargetClose, T-A-R-G-E-T-C-L-O-S-E.com. I also encourage anybody who needs to contact me directly to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Kelly, you've been a great guest here today, and uh, your uh, life story so far has been fascinating, and we hope you'll keep that up and you can come back at some point and give us the rest of the next couple chapters that you've written. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chris. All right. Our next guest will be Zig Shaw coming up after this quick commercial break.
what it would feel like to lose everything your job your home your family your dignity this has happened to thousands of the men women veterans and young adults we serve at working wardrobes what do we do to help we provide career development services life skills workshops job skills training we provide the perfect interview outfit and we get clients placed in jobs call working wardrobes 714-210-2460 donate volunteer invest hire When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of the show and listen to past shows by visiting octalkradio.net or talenttalkradio.com. We've uh, click on the Shows tab. So in the short time that the shows existed, we've amassed a huge following uh, on iTunes and Android, and we really appreciate your support. We may be having a small technical issue here, and uh, need to get our, our guest, uh, Zing Shaw, back on the phone here in just a second. Zing is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion and the head of Southeast and Southwest HR divisions at Edelman. Don't forget you can tweet your questions live uh, for Zing by sending them to at PeopleG2 and using that hashtag Talent Talk. Paul, do we have uh, Zing back on the phone? We do, I believe. Are you there with us, Zing? I sure am. There we go. Okay, we thought we lost you for a moment, but we're glad you were back here. (laughs) All right, so uh, Zing, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about yourself, uh, a little bit about your background, and of course, uh, your company, uh, Edelman. Oh, absolutely. So I'm Zing Shaw, and I work at Edelman. I've been at Edelman for the past four and a half years, working in the capacity of Director of Diversity and Inclusion, and concurrently running and leading the Human Resources Division for our Southeast and Southwest operations. I started my career in human resources a little over 15 years ago at Essence Magazine, and I have been working in HR ever since in a variety of industries. So I started in publishing, and then I transitioned to sports entertainment, where I worked at the Yankees Sports and Entertainment Network, and then I also worked at the National Football League before transitioning into public relations, all in an HR capacity, focusing heavily on recruitment, also focusing on employee relations and talent development. So really been enjoying my career. I'm so glad that I've decided to pursue a a career in human resources, and I'm so glad I landed at Edelman. Edelman is the largest public relations agency in the globe. We have 67 offices worldwide. Our U.S. operation has about 2,400 employees and 14 offices, and 
Um, we've been around for 62 years doing business with a variety of wonderful clients, and we, we just enjoy working on their business. So that's a little bit about me. Well, certainly anyone who's ever thought about having someone do PR for their company has probably run across Edelman. I know that name has, has come across my desk a few times and is very, very well known. And of course, a couple of the other companies that you've worked for that you mentioned are also just, you know, even maybe even certainly more well known than Edelman and uh, being with the New York Yankees Entertainment Network and the NFL. Now, I'm not exactly sure what you did for the NFL, but I'm guessing maybe it's a good thing you're not there right now. Um, <laughs> given everything that's going on and having to deal with any HR issues. So but maybe you can talk about some of the challenges, uh, maybe positive things or, or negative that you encountered in your kind of early part of your career while you were at those companies. Sure. Um, I guess we can start with the positive. So the good things about those organizations is that they're all very nimble. Even though the brands are very big and, and very well known, the organizations actually function in very small capacity. And so I think the positive and the good things that I've learned working in those companies is that you can roll up your sleeves and get a lot done with a small amount of resources. And I think that's really good for me in particular because it helps to stretch my brain and to help me um, be more innovative and in thinking about problems very differently as opposed to working on big, large teams where you're very siloed. So that certainly is uh, and has been very positive for me in the past. I guess a negative thing about my past work experiences. I guess I would say the long hours that you have to put in, and I you know, want to be very upfront with the, the listeners and let everyone know that you know there are some organizations and some jobs that you will deal with and that you'll take on that will take up a lot of your time, mm-hmm. upwards of 12 to 16-hour days. Um, and so I think that it's very important to really think critically about your life and what's on your plate and think about how you balance that with work because it certainly can take over all aspects of your life if you allow it to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are are times when maybe you're kind of climbing the ladder or trying to get experience and working those hours makes sense. But at some point in your life, working that many hours a day just is not going to be worth it unless you're being paid just, you know, obscenely. Um, That's right. You know, or and don't have a family or don't have other things that you have to, to also deal with. But, yeah, I can imagine uh, that that can be a challenge. And when you work for, for brands like that, it can be uh, the demands might be uh, pretty heavy. So maybe what do you kind of see as some differences then in, in, in the work that you're handling and, and, and kind of your day-to-day challenges as it relates to Edelman versus, you know, things that you did in the past? Sure. I guess the biggest difference is that all of the organizations that I worked for before were in-house organizations, meaning that that particular brand was the only brand that was relevant or that every employee was working towards, whereas at Edelman, we're an agency. And so at a PR agency or a shop similar to this, we work for multiple brands. So it's not uncommon for our employees to have anywhere from two to seven clients at a time. And so when you're working in an environment where you're thinking about different stakeholders and multiple brands at a time, it can become, you know, very hectic and you have to be extremely organized. You also have to use several parts of your brain because you might have to go back and forth between concepts and ideas. And so it can be certainly challenging, but it can also be very rewarding because you you just learn more about broad business you are exposed to a variety of, of people with diverse mindsets and diverse backgrounds. And so 
you know, that will always propel you and push you. So I think that's the major difference between my work experiences is, you know, going from in-house to agency side. So I'm guessing that, you know, this the, the idea of culture then could be one that might be difficult. Now, Evelyn said, I think you said 60, what, 62 years to work at it. So I'm sure they've, they've, they've maybe figured it out. But as you mentioned, your, your focus is on understanding and, and dealing with your clients. And so if everyone is, is actively kind of ingesting what their clients are and understanding them, and then you have offices, you know, all over, and people are spread out, you're not all locked into one area or one, you know, one facility, that really having your own identity and culture where everyone can kind of lean on that in, in helping make decisions. I mean, Kelly, our guest we just had on just before you talked about the commander's intent and understanding what the boss really wants you to do if you are in a position of having to make a decision and you don't necessarily have the the ability to, to, to find out. You have to make that decision. Knowing what commander's intent is can help you do that. So do you see that as a challenge or do you see that maybe there are things there already in place that really help you or help the company keep that in check? So I think culture is something that is critical to your organization and your organization's success. And at Edelman, we stress the importance of building a healthy and a friendly culture that is inclusive, that can provide an environment where everybody can be successful. We have recently started a culture committee, which was formed over a year ago. And our culture committee is comprised of people from around the globe um, that bring multiple perspectives to the table. And so they might have different core specialties. They might embrace different demographics. So we, we think about age, race, gender, sexual orientation, and a variety of, of facets that make people unique. And that's what we bring to the table when we put this culture committee together. And so the culture committee works very diligently to ensure that everyone across all of our 67 offices are having a positive work experience through the formulation of programs, events, initiatives, community service, corporate social responsibility, and just making sure that we are aligned to, as you previously said, the commander's marching orders. And so therefore, you know, I really think that for an organization as large as Edelman, we have made a concerted effort to work on our culture and to make sure that our culture is inviting and it is a good place because if we're going to be spending so many hours at work and working with so many different stakeholders and clients, it's got to be fun. It's got to be exciting. It's got to be innovative. And so we, we are cognizant of that and we work hard to make it that. So once you start to make some of these decisions, let's say the, the culture committee, you know, maybe comes back with some great initiatives or a couple ideas or tweaks or things that, you know, might really help your, your company moving forward. How do you then communicate that? And so you have such a large base of, of, of uh, employees spread out over such a large area. How do you communicate to them? And then how do you also maybe even communicate that out to the, as many clients as you have? Yeah, so we believe in transparency and we are our communicators. That is what we do for a living. And so we use a variety of channels for communication, whether it's email, whether it's our internal intranet, if it is through blog posts, Twitter, social media. I mean, we get the word out when we have a big initiative and we roll it out. We make sure that it doesn't just get communicated through one avenue. And we also make sure that we are communicating often. So 
we don't take for granted the fact that if an email goes out, everyone read it. And so there has to be um, ongoing communication that is fully transparent. And then we don't just communicate through our words, but we communicate through our actions. And so we show individuals in our organization why our initiatives are important. We collectively work together to make sure that they get off the ground and rolled out. And so I think that through the combination of actions and words and using a variety of channels to communicate, that's how we get the word out. So I'm wondering if you maybe looked, took a moment, and if you looked to the, the eyes of the average employee at Edelman, what do you think is the most important thing to them about why they're working for your company? You know, it's such an interesting question because, you know, as a diversity expert, I don't think that there's any singular way for people to look at things. So, you know, if I had to choose, I would think that people at our organization really care about the work and really care about the culture. I think those, like, when I think about people that I've interviewed or, you know, employees that I speak with, they want to make sure that the work is always interesting, that it's always challenging them, that they get a good mix and a great account mix so that they're not just focusing on one thing. Um, People like to really get involved in a variety of things all at once. I've noticed that a lot of people here are great multitaskers. And then I also think that because we spend a lot of time away from our home life, whatever the dynamics of home may be, whether you're married or single or you hang out with friends or you take care of parents or children, whatever it is, I think that when you're away from home, our employees want to make sure that they're having an amazing experience in the workplace. And so culture comes up all of the time, and it's something that people really care about and um, are committed to, to building and developing. So I would say those two things if I had to choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and those certainly sound like kind of right in line with what you've been talking about and what really should be the answer for an organization that's been as, around as long as Edelman has. I know you, you play a strategic role within several you know, different divisions at Edelman, given what your title is and what your responsibilities are. So what are some of the key things that you are constantly pushing or stressing to keep the company strong within you know its organizational structure? A great question. I think that, you know, from from my purview, I'm always pushing diversity and inclusion. I think that it is the secret sauce and the recipe for success in any organization, and it's something that I'm totally committed to. So whenever, you know, I'm at a strategic planning session or if I'm attending a meeting or talking with employees or even clients, it's always top of mind and always at the forefront of what I'm pushing because I think that when you get a variety of perspectives to the table and a variety of mindsets, I think that's when the work improves. I think that's when more innovation comes to the forefront and it makes our business much more vibrant. Sure, you know, we have been doing great work for many years and we are an industry leader, but I you know, I also think that we can always improve through diversity and inclusion and always do better. You have to push. Even if you're number one, you've got to continue to push to stay number one because there are a lot of organizations that are trying and they're doing things to progress. And so we have to make sure that we're moving in, in the right path and the right place and that our trajectory is forward. And so to me, diversity and inclusion is what I always talk about, what I bring up, and, and, I, and I show it through my actions, through bringing new types of clients to the table or new types of 
employees or can- job candidates to the table or even formulating um, new teams that are going to do cross-functional work together so that they can produce the best work for a client. So that's definitely first of mind on my agenda. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think so often people who either don't have good cultures or just kind of view a great culture from afar, I, I think they have this misconception that everyone is thinking the same, that everyone is aligned in a way that is of similar thinking. And and, and really, what it, the truth is, is it's the complete opposite. It's generally what people are aligned in the goal of the company. They're aligned in what the company stands for or what it's trying to do. But there's actually just almost chaos <laughs> as to how to do it and how to get that done. There's these different opinions, constant battles and fights, because you have people who are passionate about what that goal is of the company or what the what, what the company stands for. And I think from the outside looking in, people think it's almost like this, you know, Stepford Wives or something like everyone just agreeing with everything. And, you know, there's this, there's this kind of fake harmony. And when I walk into companies that have great culture, there's a lot of fighting going on, and not not in a bad way, but there's a lot of disagreement, and there's a lot of kind of heated conversations because people are, are so passionate. Would you agree with that as assessment? Listen, I think that some work environments are no different than families. Families love each other. <laughs> families are committed to one another. Right. They're there through thick and thin, and sometimes they have arguments. Mm-hmm. And usually the arguments are rooted in the fact that one party feels very strongly because of the love in their heart and they don't want to see their family member go down the wrong path and so they provide good counsel and so sometimes they don't agree and so sure I, I think that in any organization that dynamic could certainly play out but I think that it's a, a, a good sign and a good signal that that there's a sense of loyalty and a sense of caring and a sense of commitment so it's very important actually sure well, one of the things that we love to ask our uh, guests, because we get such wonderfully different and diverse uh, answers, and it always gives us another one to add, book to add to our list, and then that is, what book are you reading right now, and can you tell us about it? Sure. Well, I love to read. I'm an avid reader, and just think it's important. So anyway, I'm reading this book right now called The Medici Effect. What Elephants and Epidemics Can Teach Us About Innovation, and it's written by Franz Johansson, and it's just an amazing book about, it's actually about diversity and inclusion in a way, because it's it's talking about how you can bring concepts from one field into a new field and have groundbreaking work come out of it. So, you know, if you get a chance, you should certainly pick it up. Again, it's called The Medici Effect, What Elephants and Epidemics Can Teach Us About Innovation. And I think that you can just really apply those concepts to anything going on in your life. You know, when I was young, my mom used to say, and I think probably everyone's mom used to tell them, try doing something different and you'll get a different result. You know, if you're, you're upset that you know, you're you're getting the same result, but you're going about a process the same way, then try changing your process. And so that's literally what this book is about. It's about changing your process and changing what is common and what is known and really embracing differences so that you can be more innovative. And I I just, I love the concept. So anyway, that's that's on my reading list right now. Uh, It sounds like a fascinating book that I'm sure uh, listeners would love to check out. It sounds like you, you know, you've had a You've done some great things so far in your career and had some great successes. And usually when that happens, there's maybe a story back early on for you where 
somebody had a really big impact on your life. Uh, sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a, 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 a first boss or a mentor. Is there someone like that in your life that really impacted you and kind of set you on the path that you're on now? Absolutely. I would definitely, you know, I, I hate to sound so cliche, but my father, both of my parents have passed away, but my father was extremely instrumental in helping to shape who I am. He was a professor and he was an avid reader. So, you know, I remember as a young child watching him read. Literally, I can't remember a night when my dad, my mom would be asleep, but my dad was reading. And I think that his love for books translated through my love for books. And I think that he really has, you know, inspired me to become the person that I am and to strive for greater knowledge beyond what I'm being told, to strive to learn about others through reading and not only through reading but through having new experiences with new types of people. He was, you know, as a professor, he was very big on diversity and and believed that you could learn so much about yourself and about the world by putting yourself in situations being around different types of people. And so I really appreciate the lessons that he taught me throughout my life. And he was just a great guy. Yeah. I very often when I meet someone who, well, let's say they're closed-minded, let's, let's put it that way, I, I usually the, the only thing I can suggest is please go travel. You know, please, please, mm-hmm. please go read, you know, a book that you wouldn't normally read. I mean, it's just something to kind of start to crack open their mind a little bit uh, and not see things so, you know, kind of teenager tunnel vision. Um, you, you know, and I, I know for me that that really I was always kind of in that process. But when I began traveling, it just it multiplied by, you know, just incredible amounts. It, we run across different. You, you see how we're all the same, but you see how we're all different and and. I think that that's a really powerful thing that can really kind of come back and help in the initiatives you're talking about with diversity and, and inclusion as well. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of traveling over the course of my days, and I have that, that same takeaway. I remember studying abroad in the U.K. and having an experience with two people who were natives of the UK who one was a black woman and one was a white man and I remember having a conversation with the two of them and I brought up race and that she and I were the same because we were both black and they both looked at me kind of confused and perplexed and they said well what do you mean and I said well she and I are both black and you know you're white and he said well no she and I are British and you're American Mm -hmm. and she said well I agree And so that was the first time in my life as an American growing up um, where, you know, race is so forefront and, you know, everything that we think about is is top of mind race in this country and going over there to the U.K. and realizing and recognizing that people don't see it that way. They actually think of class system um, as more important than skin color. And so I would have never known that or had that experience if I didn't study abroad or if I didn't travel to a new place and and have conversations with new people. And so when I have conversations with people that have not traveled, I understand why some of their thoughts can be so linear because you, you really have to be exposed to new ways of thinking and new types of people to get it. Right. Absolutely. Well, if people are interested in learning more about Edelman or learning more about you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Sure. So certainly I would encourage everyone to go to Edelman's website, www.edelman, 
E-D-E-L-M-A-N.com. You can find out everything about our organization on our website. It's a comprehensive, wonderful website with filled with information, loads of information. And we, we actually have blog posts that we publish on our website from people that work at our organization. And you can find several blog posts that I've written on our site as well. If you just look in the search section for Zing Shaw, you can read some of my writing and learn about the things that are important to not only me but to my organization. And then if you want to know more about me, you can just find me on Twitter. I'm at Zing Shaw, one word, Z-I-N-G-S-H-A-W. Well, Zing, you've been tremendously interesting, and I've loved learning about your story and the things that you've done so far. And we would love to have you come back at some point and give us the, your next update uh, on what you've been doing uh, when the time is right. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, and I know you had some tough personal things going on today, and it was a little bit of a challenge for you to get on the show today, so we really appreciate you making uh, that time for us because I think our listeners really uh, learned a lot from you today. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day, and I'll talk with you again soon. You too. So that's about all the time we have for uh, today's show. Thanks again to my special guests, Kelly Purdue and Zing Shaw. Tune in next week, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, to hear John Arcado, Director of Human Resources at Kishiwaki College. I hope I'm saying that right, but I'm probably not knowing me. And Jennifer uh, Fairley, Human Resources Manager at Lorna Jane. She's also alma mater from Troy High, where I went. So that um, automatically makes her a good guest. But until then, do what you love. Oh, and show the world how uh, talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 